We will hear argument this morning in Case 08322, Northwest Austin Municipal Utility District versus Holder. Mr. Coleman. Good morning, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. After more than 20 years of steadfast compliance with the Voting Rights Act, Northwest Austin Mud Number no. 1 is entitled to be free from the intrusive burdens of preclearance. The district is entitled to seek a bailout because it is a political subdivision under the Court's decisions in Sheffield and Dougherty County. This natural parallelism between bailout and preclearance allows bailout to serve its ameliorative purposes of encouraging, recognizing, and rewarding long-term compliance and progress. It, it, may be, it may be a political subdivision under those decisions, but it's certainly not a political subdivision under the statutory definition. Well, we disagree with that, Your Honor. We believe that under Dougherty County in particular, the Court specifically recognized that these entities, such as cities and school boards and utility districts, are political subdivisions and that that term is — Bailout wasn't involved in those cases. And what do you do with the statute that has three categories? There's state, political subdivision, and then there's governmental unit. The district qualifies as a governmental unit. Why would Congress add that third category if the district came within political subdivision? Justice Ginsburg, the term governmental unit doesn't actually appear in the provision that authorizes bailout. What it says is that when a political subdivision seeks a bailout, that if it has any governmental units within it, it must also ensure that they are compliant before it can have a bailout. For instance, although the district is not a political subdivision of the county, it is in the county, and therefore under the substantive criteria, if the, uh, Travis County wanted to bail out, it would have to demonstrate compliance of all of those governmental units yes, within but it. The gov- but the statute does use the term governmental unit to encompass districts. And if they were also subdivisions, why would Congress need to add an additional category? Uh, again, I disagree with Your Honor that, that the term governmental unit appears in the provision that it defines criteria. It appears in the statute twice, suggesting that Congress had in mind three categories. Uh, again, the, the statute that defines who's eligible to bail out says a state a political subdivision that has been separately designated for coverage under 4B and a political subdivision that has not been separately designated for coverage. We were never separately designated for coverage, and under Sheffield and Dougherty County, we have long been considered a political subdivision. Indeed, we are subject to the process of preclearance only because we were a political subdivision. The actual requirement that you send in preclearance submissions is on political subdivisions. We're subject to lawsuits under Section 2 because we're a political subdivision. We're subject to the possibility of federal examiners because we're a political subdivision. At no place in this Voting Rights Act, in any of the dozens of uses of the term political subdivision, has this Court or Congress, other than the designation statute, separately suggested that a political subdivision such as the district would not be considered a political subdivision well, under the terms of the Voting Rights Act. To the extent we have some latitude uh, in construing the Act, uh, certainly it would be a relevant factor 
if we concluded that it's just unworkable um, or, or impractical to have an uncovered jurisdiction within a county which is a covered jurisdiction, they would have the competing election days, a competing election formulae, uh, and it, it would seem to me that that just makes compliance with the Act much more difficult. Well, well certainly we believe that the purposes of the Act um, suggest that we should be considered political subdivisions eligible to bail out. This interaction between the county and the district, we, we exist within the county, but we are not part of the county. The county, as we say, is not the boss of us. Uh, they don't have any way to ensure or require us to do things. And as the facts of this case demonstrate, um, not only do the county have different political interests, but we've also demonstrated that because you have entities that are subject to um, separate designation like the county that, that have dozens and, and perhaps in this case um, over a hundred uh, separate political subdivisions, Travis County could never practically seek a bailout. And in order to give effect to what I call this ameliorative purpose to bailout, uh, the court should interpret the statute in a way that allows these small entities to bail out. These small entities. How do you account for the fact that if your district were located in a separately covered political subdivision, uh, you clearly could not bail out? Well, I, I, again, the court doesn't need to reach that question in that, but I'm not sure that the answer is that we clearly couldn't. If we were a um, separately designated, or excuse me, if we were in a separately designated county, it says it's not in a covered state, right? Um, there is this argument, for instance, that um, that, that state could be um, covered in whole or in part. And certainly, for instance, in California, uh, the state is, is covered in part, uh, and it could be resolved in that way. Uh, the statute is not exceptionally clear on it, but the court doesn't have to reach that because we are in a fully covered state, and we are under all the provisions of Voting Rights Act have always been considered political subdivisions, the district court said you're a political subdivision for every purpose except this one. You there have was to a, the district court uh, had some assistance from the legislative development of this latest extension. There was a proposal, was there not, to allow governmental units to bail out, to allow anyone who was required to pre-clear to bail out I don't know that there was a specific legislative proposal, Justice Ginsburg. There was certainly some discussion of that. Uh, what, it, what is particularly clear? And, and what was the reason that it was resisted? I don't know that the record actually shows that it was resisted. It was simply part of the discussion during the reauthorization proceedings. I'm not aware of any specific resistance relating to that. There weren't any amendments to the statute. But the amendments in 1982, we do believe, are very important to the Court's consideration of that because the, the bailout aspects were considered in City of Rome. And in City of Rome, the only entities that could bail out were a, were a state or a separately covered or separately designated subdivision. And then two years after that, Congress amends the statute to add this third category, which is political subdivisions that have not been separately designated for coverage. That amendment and that addition is clearly in direct response to City of Rome, and we believe a clear indication that Congress did intend, indeed it said it intended, 
to expand the bailout opportunities. Congress believed that many, if perhaps not most, political subdivisions in 1982 would be eligible for bailout. But the Department of Justice has does it does it not have a regulation that contradicts your reading, and and hasn't that been out there? Wasn't it out there before the 2006 extension? Yes, Justice Ginsburg. But unlike the Attorney General's regulations that relate to preclearance, bailout is not something that the Attorney General actually has any specific say in. The statute provides for a lawsuit to seek a bailout. It's not like preclearance where you can get it from either the Attorney General or the um, District Court. Now, the Attorney General may choose, as it has for several of the Virginia entities, not to resist that. So you can file a friendly suit once the Attorney General's been uh, convinced. If, if but, we find that you're not covered by the bailout provision, uh, that only the county is, uh, do you really then have standing to proceed to question the workability of the bailout uh, uh, procedures? Uh, I, I suppose that would be a threshold argument for you to question the validity of the Act. Well, with respect to our constitutionality issue, Justice Kennedy, uh, one thing nobody is contesting here is that we are not subject to preclearance. And so if we are not eligible for bailout, we obviously do, and we believe have standing to assert that the reenactment of the preclearance provisions is unconstitutional because they, unlike the bailout, would clearly continue to apply to us. Well, has preclearance been denied to you? Well, we didn't seek a preclearance. Exactly. I mean, I, I, if, if, you're, if you're basing it simply on your subjection to preclearance and there's no contest between you and the government over preclearing anything, I'm not sure why you would be in court. Well, there's certainly a possibility we may seek to preclear things in the, in the future, but this then, is then isn't primarily — isn't that the time to litigate it? Uh, no, Justice Souter. This is primarily a facial challenge to the statute. We are subject to the obligations of preclearance. And we believe but it's, that we it's not affecting anything you're doing on a day-to-day basis, as I understand it. There's no claim that, that, uh, that your uh, district is doing anything improper. Uh, no claim is being made against you. And, and I guess your whole argument would be maybe someday we want to pre-clear again, uh, and maybe we wouldn't be as successful as we have been in each of the instances before, but I don't see how that gets you into court. I agree with — I disagree with that as well, Justice Souter. Well, it has not been highlighted in the briefs, uh, there is deep in the record discussion during a, a MUD board meeting of potentially some changes, uh, and discussion on that was tabled pending the outcome of this lawsuit. What was the last time that the district applied for preclearance the last year? The contract in 2004 by which we — asked the county to actually perform the elections itself. That was pre-cleared, Your Honor. And so 2004 is the last year. So between 2004 and 2009, the district has not sought pre-clearance. That's correct. This law- but you're subject to pre-clearance, and, and yeah. you cannot make changes without uh, going to the attorney general and asking for his permission. That's correct. Right? But is it, it any different from uh, — uh, from a, uh, a, a federal law uh, prohibiting uh, a certain speech, uh, do you have to uh, subject yourself to the uh, 
uh, to the penalty for that speech before you can uh, attack the law? I don't think so. No, Justice. But that is the suit you brought. Correct me if I'm wrong, um, and, and I may be wrong on this. I, I thought this suit eventuated from the fact uh, that you had been denied bailout uh, and that your entire case was brought on the refusal of bailout. I did not understand that you had brought a general declaratory judgment action uh, or a, or a, a, a facial attack uh, in, in gross, as it were, on the statute. Am, am I wrong about your pleading? I, I do think you're wrong about that, Justice Souter. We had not been denied bailout. The suit sought bailout. The only yes. way to seek a bailout is through the lawsuit, and this right. lawsuit seeks the bailout and a declaratory judgment that if we cannot bail but you, out. You separately asked for declaratory judgment? Yes. Okay. There, there are different claims in the lawsuit, Your Honor. And indeed, the standard point But you, is, you don't challenge if you have bailout, say we accept your reading of the statute, you are not contesting the constitutionality of the Act if it matched your obligation to pre-clear with the right to bailout. Well, that's not exactly right either, Justice Ginsburg. We certainly contest and contend that preclearance is unconstitutional. We acknowledge that if the Court were to give us bailout, that the Court might choose on its own not to reach the constitutional issues because we would receive but relief. But I, I, I thought I just heard you say, even if you got the bailout, the, the extension for another 25 years would still be unconstitutional. Is that — or are you saying — that the accommodation, the modification, would suffice to make the statute constitutional? No, no we do not say that the modification would make the statute unconstitutional. Our position is both, that we're entitled to bail out and we have an alternative claim that we have asserted that is independent, it's not dependent on the first one, that preclearance is unconstitutional. Well, Mr. Coleman, this is important to me. Do you, do you acknowledge that if we find in your favor on the bailout point, we need not reach the constitutional point? I do acknowledge that, Justice Souter. Well, presumably you wouldn't have standing to raise it because you wouldn't be subject to the preclearance requirement. Right. But because we got all the claims together in one lawsuit, we had, we had to assert them all together, and that's what we've done. Uh, getting to the heart of this preclearance issue, if I may, Katzenbach recognized that preclearance really was an extraordinary remedy, and it recognized that this is a remedy that would not otherwise be appropriate but for the extraordinary emergency circumstances that existed at the time. Nobody has challenged that. But we are in a different day. The kinds of — Mr. Coleman, may I, may I just raise a basic point here? And, and I'll be candid with you that it, it affects my, my view of your argument, and I just want to start with it. Your argument is, is largely based on the assumption that things have significantly changed and that, therefore, Congress could not, by whatever test we use, extend, the, uh, extend Section 5 as it did. But what we've got in the record in front of us, I don't have a laundry list to read, but, I mean, we've got, I think, at the present time, a 16-point registration difference on Hispanic and non-Hispanic uh, white voters in Texas. We've got a record of some 600 interpositions by the, by the Justice Department on Section 5 proceedings, Section 5 objections over a period of about 20 years. 
We got a record that about two-thirds of them were based on the Justice Department's view that it was intentional discrimination. We got something like 600 uh, Section 2 lawsuits over the, over the same period of time. The, the, the point that I'm getting at is I don't understand with a record like that how you can maintain as a basis for this suit that things have radically changed. Uh, they may be better, but to say that they have radically changed to the point that this becomes an unconstitutional Section 5 exercise within Congress's judgment just seems to me to, to deny the, the empirical reality. I mean, what is your answer to that? Our answer, Your Honor, is, is a very clear one, and that is there is a difference between a non-discrimination statute and a non-circumvention statute. Section 2, Section 203, the prohibition on the uses of tests and devices, these are clear non-discrimination provisions that are textually linked back to the, um, to the constitutional prohibitions. Section 5 was never intended to be a non-discrimination statute. Section 5 is a non-circumvention statute, and notwithstanding the But the, volume, the evidence that I've been getting into is a pretty good indication, I would have thought, Congress thought so, and I would have thought so, too, that there is something to be concerned about on the issue of circumvention, uh, that, in fact, the, the attitudes have not so radically changed as to render circumvention irrelevant. I honestly disagree with you, Justice Souter, on that. Notwithstanding, but there was Congress fastened on that issue, and it referred to second-generation discrimination, which is a frequent pattern with discrimination. You start with the blatant, overt discrimination, and then, in time, uh, people recognize that that's that won't go anymore. So the discrimination becomes more subtle, less easy to smoke out. But it doesn't go from blatant, overt discrimination to everything is equal. Justice Ginsburg, the court in Katzenbach recognized that Congress had been trying for several years to try to fix this problem. And it walked through, as this court has walked through innumerable times, that Section 5 was simply not about non-discrimination, but it was about the unremitting and ingenious defiance of statutes in a way that made ordinary enforcement mechanisms, including litigation, simply ineffective. That no matter what the courts did, in the South, the, the enforcement mechanisms were unable to allow minority individuals to register and get out and vote, that no matter what happened. Pre-clearance put a stop to that, but notwithstanding this record, which I'd like to speak to the volume. I'll ask you that question because I'd like to hear your answer. Notwithstanding that record, it is not the kind of record. Congress put together what it believed is a discrimination record, but not a circumvention record. There's no indication, for instance, in these types of examples that had been offered in the briefs and were offered um, in the congressional hearings, that these aren't things that can be fixed through ordinary enforcement mechanisms through but Section you 2 take litigation. The, the multiple devices, take the one as, as simple as moving the election day so that it will coincide with the, ho- with the holiday of a pre- predominantly minority college. That, w- 
to go after every change of that order with a Section 2 lawsuit um, of the two devices, surely the Section 5 is more effective to smoke that out. Two points on that, Justice Ginsburg. First, with respect to the Waller County issue, that was an issue that was very swiftly addressed by Texas officials themselves in cooperation with the NAAC. The Texas Secretary of State and the Texas Attorney General came down very swiftly on that issue. Um, the second perhaps point they, is perhaps they wouldn't if the only tool in the arsenal were Section 2, if everything had to be a federal lawsuit. And that gets at the heart of one of our arguments, Justice. Can I ask you this that question is, for a second, please? And just take two minutes to answer it or not. You don't have to answer it. But it seems to me this is a question. This ish whole issue depends on the evidence before Congress. So in reading the briefs, I have six categories of evidence compared to the city of Rome. The registration turnout still has two states, Virginia and Texas, with significant disparities. As to minority office holders, there's a big improvement. But if you look at Mississippi, Louisiana, and South Carolina, and a couple of others, it's still not great. The DOJ objections, the number of DOJ objections has fallen a lot, but it still exists. In terms of election observers, which were not mentioned in City of Rome, we have their statistics that two-thirds of the observers are focused on five of the six states uh, that are covered. In terms of polarized voting, not mentioned in Rome, we still have testimony that the polarization is significant and common in certain places. And as to successful Section 2, Section 5 suits, once again, not mentioned in the City of Rome, but since 1982, there were at least 105 successful Section 5 suits and 653 successful Section 2 suits. All right. I just summarize that, because I'd like to hear in a couple of minutes or five or whatever one you want to take, I'm trying to lead you to what I think is the heart of the case. It seems evidentiary. That's what I read. What's your response? Well, I, I'm obviously not going to have time to respond to all of that, Justice Breyer. But, for instance, with respect to the first point that you raised, which is voter turn registration and turnout issues, uh, those numbers don't tell the whole story. In fact, in fact, with respect to both um, black and Hispanic voters, the record in covered jurisdictions is above the national average. Uh, Massachusetts, for instance, you might be learned to know, has a white-black voter registration and turnout differential that is in the high 20s, far in excess of any covered jurisdiction, and that's part of what Congress didn't do. So in addition to the argument that we have that, that the record Congress produced is really a non-discrimination record and not a circumvention record, we also have the argument that we've made that is simply irrational for Congress to go back and say, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was intended to, to make sure that uh, minority voters can register and vote, and that's going to be our number one priority, as Justice Ginsburg recognized. Um, Congress believes that that has been satisfied. But now we're going to go back, and in determining who's going to be covered under the 2006 amendment, we're going to use the same data from the 1964 election. It would have been as if Congress in 1965 said, we anticipate that there are problems here, and in order to define coverage, we're going to look at the Roosevelt-Hoover election in 1932 and registration and turnout then, because we think that's the best way to evaluate. Justice Breyer did refer you to some other uh, more current statistics, uh, submissions, Title V suits, and so forth. Uh, you might want to address those. And, and in that context, 
was there any control data to compare um, uh, preclearance rates or preclearance events in colored and covered jurisdictions as opposed to uncovered Absolutely. jurisdictions? And that, that's part of the showing, it seems to me, that the Congress has to make, that these states that are now covered and that were covered uh, are, are markedly different uh, from the non-covered jurisdictions. Was there anything in the records before the Congress or the District Court to address that point? The only comparative data that existed was of two kinds. Um, there was, a, there was a, some data that grouped all covered jurisdictions into one lump and all non-covered jurisdictions into another lump and counted up Section 2 lawsuits. Uh, and the difference was about 17 successful more, 17 more successful Section 2 suits in covered jurisdictions than in non-covered jurisdictions. That's, that's not a big difference. What Congress didn't do, though, is look at specific non-covered jurisdictions, for instance, what I've, what I've cited, uh, and say, how do these compare to covered jurisdictions? And the other thing it didn't do is say, among covered jurisdictions and non-covered jurisdictions, Let's look among, let's separate out among these jurisdictions and see where the problem locations are and what areas we think might, if, if preclearance is going to be constitutional, might be subjected. There's absolutely no evidence in the record of that. Preclearance, once again, is based on the results, well, whether there was a tester device in the 60s and the results of the 1964, 1968, and 1972 what presidential What kind of coverage election. formula would be? Adequate. You are attacking Congress's preservation of the same coverage formula. But what other coverage formula could it come up with? Well, just to give one example, and I'm not, not recommending this, but if, for instance, the same coverage formula had been applied to the 2000 and 2004 elections, uh, equalizing for citizen voting age population, the only coverage state would have been Hawaii. Under that formula, using modern date, uh, modern information, none of these states would have been covered if you um, account for non, non-citizen voting age population. There was, uh, maybe the government will refer to it, I thought quite a bit of evidence comparing covered and non-covered in this record. I wouldn't say quite a bit, Your Honor. What it did is it lumped all covered jurisdiction together, and all non-covered jurisdictions. Well, you said all that there was was a number of, of Section 2 suits, but I think there was quite a bit more than that. I, I actually dispute that. There's a lot of discussion of that information, Your Honor, uh, but it's not that m- much information. And again, it doesn't, it doesn't take into account any attempt to say how does the panhandle of Texas do against uh, Florida, against parts of northeast Georgia or northwest Alabama. How are these? It, it makes no attempt Whatsoever, it's simply all covered jurisdictions as a lump and all non-covered jurisdictions as a lump. And Congress had no basis to make that that. In your, in your answer, you said if they used the 2004, uh, the only state would be Hawaii. But I asked you what formula would pass if Congress wants to get at, wants to protect the gains that have been made but are still fragile against backsliding. If that's its objective, what can it cover? It needed to make an evaluation of where there's an actual risk of backsliding and where there is actual evidence of 
circumvention. We don't believe that. Well, what about we the evidence that Justice Breyer summarized, that I alluded to? I mean, those — that is certainly evidence of racial attitude, and it seems to me in the real world that can be taken as evidence that if the uh, — if the, if the Section 5 safeguard is taken away, the pushback is going to start. That evidence — It's never stopped. That evidence justifies strict enforcement of non-discrimination statutes, but it does not justify a presumption that state and local officials in these areas are so racist that they cannot be relied on to pass and enforce fair they couldn't, voting They lines. couldn't be relied upon, apparently, in the some 200 cases in which the voting change was withdrawn after DOJ objection. Again, this, this information that goes out over 30 years across uh, thousands this, of This thousands wasn't information over 30 years. My recollection, and I could be wrong on this, but my recollection is that those were statistics from about 20 years uh, prior to the reauthorization. Uh, the, the, from, from 1982 forward. So we have 25 yeah, years right. across thousands of jurisdictions, but the objection rate is on the order of single digits per 10,000 submissions. It simply is a matter of comparison with 1965. doesn't work. May I reserve the rest of my time, Your Honor? Thank you, Mr. Coleman. Mr. Coppiel. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. And let me begin where Mr. Coleman left off, because I don't think that his argument adequately grapples either with this Court's consistent upholding of the provision at issue four times over four decades or with Congress's action in 2006. Congress's reauthorization in 2006 was the paradigmatic attempt of what to do in Congress. It didn't redefine a right, nor did it cast dispersions at Supreme Court doctrine. Rather, it took that doctrine seriously, both this Court's teachings with respect to the Voting Rights Act specifically, as well as the the scope of the Congress's reconstruction enforcement powers, and arrived at a considered judgment. After 16,000 pages of testimony, 21 different hearings over 10 months, Congress looked at the evidence and determined that their work was not done. That well, so the, the, our, our, our decision in City of Bernie said that action under Section 5 has to be congruent and proportional to what it's trying to remedy. Here, as I understand it, one-twentieth of one percent of the submissions are not pre-cleared. That, to me, suggests that they're sweeping far more broadly than they need to to address the intentional discrimination under the 15th Amendment. Um, I, I disagree with that, Mr. Chief Justice. I think what that represents is that Section 5 is actually working very well, that it provides a deterrent. This was a debate in Congress. Indeed, Mr. Coleman himself testified before Congress and said the low objection rate is evidence that it isn't congruent and proportional. The Congress disagreed with this. What it found instead was that Section 5 was deterring uh, the problem. That well, that's like the old, uh, you know, it's the elephant whistle. You know, I have this whistle to keep away the elephants. You know, well, that's silly. Well, there are no elephants, so it must work. I mean, if you have uh, uh, 99.98 percent of these being pre-cleared, why isn't that reaching far too broadly. Well, let me suggest another example. Yesterday, the Administrative Office for the United States Courts said that uh, there were approximately 17,500 requests for Title III uh, wiretaps in the past 10 years. 
four of them had been rejected. That's a 0.023 percent rejection rate. But I don't think one could use those numbers and say, oh, that means that, the, that Title III doesn't deter or prevent abusive wiretaps. What it suggests instead, if Congress so found, I agree that if we were just standing up with no record whatsoever, that's one thing. But Congress heard testimony. They found example after example. The, but- parallel, the parallel isn't there. I mean, there are laws against intentional discrimination. So there should be laws against wiretapping. There should also be laws against intentional discrimination. But we're, the, the, the argument here is not that those laws be eliminated. It's just that the preclearance requirements be eliminated. Right. Absolutely. And Congress found with respect to those intentional laws that prevent intentional vote discrimination, which is Section 2, which you hear Mr. Coleman relying on today, that that is ineffective for the same reasons that this Court has found them ineffective repeatedly in South Carolina versus Katzenbach and City of Rome. A long time ago. How, how, how much of the evidence that Congress amassed was specifically circumvention evidence? Uh, uh, quite a bit of evidence about uh, the ineffectiveness of Section 2 as a remedy. So, and uh, the statement for the interveners, there's a 500-page statement filed before the district court, which excerpts the uh, congressional record. And at pages 270 to 279, you see a long series of a long analysis by Congress about how Section 2 is ineffective, that it costs too much to bring the litigation, that there are a few attorneys that will handle it, that uh, it, that, uh, that there isn't enough uh, money in the well, in If that Section teacher. 2 is ineffective, then why didn't Congress extend Section 5 to the entire country? It, could Congress have reauthorized Section 5 with, without identifying significant differences between the few jurisdictions that are covered and, and the rest of the country? Uh, I don't believe so. I think Congress had to make some showing. And here there are explicit legislative findings that say that Section 5 is needed in these areas. Well, not it's comparative, so- however, not comparative with but- the rest of the country, except in, 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 in gross. Well, I disagree with that uh, for several reasons. First of all, and most, I think, what this utility district can argue about is Texas. And Congress found very specific evidence about, about discrimination in the state of Texas. They found that they led the st- country in the number of objections. They found that the, disp- that the registration rates, as Justice Souter said, between Hispanics and whites was great. Did they, well, it's 18 percent. If these statistics are correct, the, the difference between Latino registration and white registration in Texas was 18.6 percent, which is not good, but it's substantially lower than the rate in California, which is not covered, 37 percent, Colorado, 28 percent, New Mexico, 24 percent, the nationwide average, 30 percent. Well, uh, again, I think that uh, what Congress found is that the rate in Texas, coupled with its historical amount of discrimination together, Justified, justified the reauthorization of Section 5. It Let me focus on that historical aspect. Obviously, no one doubts the history here and that the history was different. But at what point does that history seek, stop justifying action with respect to some jurisdictions, but not with respect to others that show greater disparities? Again, I think what this Court has, has ha- answered that question in Katzenbach by saying it may be the case that other jurisdictions discriminate more. Congress can deal with the problem one step at a time. And the, and the Congress has said 
that the Court should be particularly worried about uh, trying to predict the future and say that discrimination is now over. And we have fairly good — Well, so then your answer is that Congress can impose this disparate treatment forever because of the history in the South? Absolutely not. What well, when can they — when can they — when do they have to stop? Well, Congress here said 25 years was uh, 25 years was the appropriate reauthorization period. Just well, they said five years originally, then another 20 years, and uh, I mean, at some point, it begins to look like the idea is that this is going to go on forever. Well, again, if Congress can't make the findings, then I think this court would be well within its powers uh, to uh, to strike it down. But here, the court is being asked to do something that has never been done before, which is to use its 15th to say that Congress exceeded the bounds of its its 15th Amendment powers and its 14th Amendment powers in an area involving race and voting. That has never happened. Before. Well, is the burden that the Act puts on the state a relevant consideration? Uh, it certainly is. We don't How, mean how many history. people in the Department of Justice, what's the Department of Justice budget for preclearance uh, processes each year, do you know? I don't know what the budget is. I can tell you there, there are approximately 30 attorneys who uh, work in the voting. 30 attorneys. Do, do you quarrel with the assessment uh, of the testimony for the Senate Judiciary Committee that it cost the states and the municipalities a billion dollars over 10 years to comply? Uh, again, I, I don't quarrel with that, but Congress certainly can But you think that is, that is relevant? Uh, I, I certainly think the burden on the states is relevant. Also relevant is the fact that the states are now not coming before the court and objecting the way they were in South Carolina versus Katzenbach but in yet, the city of yet Rome. the Congress has made a finding uh, that the sovereignty of Georgia is less than the sovereign dignity of Ohio. The sovereignty of Alabama is less than the sovereign dignity of Michigan, and that the governments in one are to be trusted in, uh, less than the governments in the other. And does the United States take that position today? I wouldn't put it at all in those terms. I would say what Congress found is that there is a historical amount of discrimination coupled with recent evidence and comparative data between covered and non-covered jurisdictions that justifies continuation of a remedy that states now overwhelmingly But then my appreciate. point stands. You say that there is a basis for treating states quite differently as to the, this fundamental right that we all agree on with respect to voting. And what's happened in part is that because of Section 5 preclearance, say a minority opportunity district uh, is protected in covered jurisdictions and not in non-covered jurisdictions. But, this, but, this, 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 is, this is a great disparity in treatment, and the government of the United States is saying that our states must be treated differently. And you have a very substantial burden if you're going to make that case. Justice Kennedy, their burden is the same as it has always been in South Carolina versus Katzenbach and City of Rome. And the burden is on Congress to say, is continuation of this landmark achievement, one of the most transformative acts in American history, still justified? Because with this act, what Congress, what Congress did was essentially uh, redeem itself in the eyes of the world. No one, no one questions the, the, the validity, the urgency, the essentiality uh, of the Voting Rights Act. The question is whether or not it should be continued with this differentiation between the states. And, and that is for Congress to show. And Congress did show precisely that. They showed, for example, Justice Kennedy, that, uh, that the differential between covered and non-covered states with respect to Section 2 lawsuits 
uh, the, was 57 percent of successful Section 2 lawsuits were filed in covered jurisdictions, even though they are 25 percent of the population. Well, why didn't 30. Congress then extend the Act to Massachusetts, whereas your brother told us the disparity between Hispanic and non-Hispanic voting is far greater than jurisdictions that are covered? Because that — because, again, that is only one aspect of the overall problem, the amount of registration rates or something like that. What Congress has historically done ever since the inception of the Voting Rights Act is target those states where discrimination is so rooted that it is hard to get rid of without preclearance. Preclearance transformed the landscape and enfranchised millions of Americans, and Congress heard evidence and said after 16,000 pages of testimony that the extension in these specific areas was necessary in order to root out and prevent discriminatory Would you agree that there are some oddities in this coverage formula? Is is it not the case that in New York City the Bronx is covered and Brooklyn and Queens are not? Uh, there, there, there are certainly uh, some oddities, as there always have been, from Katzenbach uh, and from City of Rome. And what this Court has said is that Congress can act on the state-by-state -state level um, and, uh, and, and, there, and that there's a remedy for the problem, which is the bailout provision. Oh, that — let's talk about the bailout provision. Okay. That, that, that was inserted in 1982? That's correct. So how many years is that? 92, over a quarter of a century? There have been 15 — Bailouts that have gone through, all of them in the state of Virginia. There, there have been 18 uh, under it, the new provision. You, which you, was you bring this before us as a justification for the legislation. I am saying it's obviously quite impracticable. Again, for that, anybody to bail out. Justice Scalia, that precise argument was made to Congress in 2006, and it was rejected. And the, the question is whether it's right, not whether Congress rejected it. And I think it's not right because be, be, because uh, what the testimony found was that states are able to bail out, but they don't. And this goes back to my point to Justice Kennedy, because today states are finding that preclearance actually serves their interests. It, 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 it fends off Section 2 suits, I assume. I mean, that's great. You get a declaratory judgment here, you know, a benediction. And you, and you skip off without having to face suits. That may be one reason. Another reason may be that they, that they like the, the packing of minorities and the other, uh, the, 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 the other districting tricks that can be uh, that can be pulled because of uh, because of the requirements of the voting rights. Well, I don't think that's a quite fair characterization. After all, here Congress in 2006 found all senators voted for this bill, and indeed 90 of the 110 representatives from covered jurisdictions voted for it. So, if the court is they were elected under this system, why why should they kick it away? Excuse me. I, mean, I say everybody who voted for this this uh, system was elected under this system. Should it be surprising that they think it's a good thing? Well, I think that uh, we shouldn't — this Court should be loath to second-guess the motivations of Congress under — We have — we have before us the representations of the county in which the district is located and of several of the current jurisdictions that they don't seek bailout because they think that the benefits — many of which have nothing to do with districting, outweigh whatever burden preclearance puts on them. It's first bringing minority groups into the discussion of what the change will be in the first place, and then warding off the kind of examples that appear in the 
in the Lewis brief, I think we, we can't impugn their integrity by saying that that host of reasons having nothing to do with re- redistricting is why they're not asking for bailout. That, that's precisely right, Justice Ginsburg. Okay. And uh, the, what the covered jurisdictions also say is something about how this te- the test before this Court shouldn't be the narrow time slice of today. Rather, the test should be to think about historically what has happened. We're, we're not insisting that they — the other side is not insisting that they be kicked out. If they want to voluntarily stay in, fine. In fact, you should let other states and other jurisdictions opt, opt in if they want to. If you want to make this a voluntary system, that's something entirely different. But the question is, assuming a state or, or a covered jurisdiction does not want to be in, do you have the right to coerce them to be in? That's all we're talking about. They want to stay in, that's fine. And this Court has recognized, in the brief of the covered jurisdictions, recognizes the fact that it's a separate sovereign requiring this provides an additional deterrent element and increases the integrity of the elections. If I could return to the point I was saying a moment ago, uh, what these covered jurisdictions are saying is that this moment in time isn't the right test. Rather, you should look at the overall historical record. Well, of the this overall historical record, Katzenbach said there had been an unremitting and ingenious defiance. Uh, and that was certainly true uh, as of the time of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, the d- democracy was a shambles in, in, in those cases. And that's not true anymore. And f- to say that the states are willing to yield uh, their sovereign authority and their sovereign responsibilities to govern themselves doesn't work. We've said in in, uh, Clinton versus New York that Congress can't surrender uh, its powers to the president. And the same is true with reference to the states. Wouldn't you agree? Uh, that, that is correct. And here this Court has repeatedly said this isn't any sort of surrendering of power. It was justified because of the record of discrimination. South Carolina versus Katzenbach, Justice Kennedy, I don't quite think said that defiance was a precondition. Rather, it found that the onerous amount of case-by-case litigation itself wasn't enough. And I would caution this Court because this Court has had examples before in which the historical record looked good at a narrow moment in time. If we think back a 100 years to reconstruct, Ninety-five percent of African Americans enfranchised, 600 black members in the state legislatures, eight black members of Congress, a black South, a black justice in the South Carolina Supreme Court. Things look good, looked good, and that led this court in the civil rights cases over Justice Harlan's lone dissent to say the era of special protection was over. Could I ask you this question about about bailout? Um, I mean, we have, there's a very odd aspect to this case. We have an immense constitutional question. And then, on the other hand, we have this little utility district, which, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but as far as I got from the briefs, they've never done anything wrong. And they would like to bail out. And the Voting Rights Act was intended to permit jurisdictions that were not committing transgressions to bail out. Now, if the statute doesn't allow them to do it, the statute doesn't allow them to do it. But is there any good reason why a district like that should not be permitted to bail out? Again, uh, this Court has repeatedly said that this Congress of the United States can legislate on the state-by-state level. After all, the text of the 15th Amendment speaks of any state. So I think the relevant test is the amount of discrimination in Texas. And there, the evidence, it's not just registration rates. It's the fact that they lead the country in objections under Section 5, that the greatest deterrent effect of the more information process is uh, in the state of Texas. If it's the case that there's no discrimination going on, no evasion, 
corruption going on in this little utility district, is there any good reason why they shouldn't be able to bail out? Yes, absolutely, because that's what City of Rome argued in, in 1980. And what this Court said in rejecting precisely that argument over Justice Powell's dissent was that uh, it's not — discrimination can't be done at the individual unit-by-unit unit level. It rather, if Congress so chooses, can do it on a more broad level. That was 1980? That's correct. But uh, the, the bailout provision was adopted in 1982. The, Twenty-seven years ago, there have been 15 bailouts since then. Is that what you think Congress contemplated when it enacted the bailout provision in 82? First of all, there was a bailout provision at issue in 1980. It was amended in 1982. And, yes, I think Congress contemplated a process. The legislative record on this is very clear. Less than one a year. That, no, what they contemplated was to make it easier for political subdivisions to bail out. And what Congress, what Congress anticipated, certainly more than one a year, that didn't materialize. And again, I think, Justice Scalia, the reason why it didn't materialize is because states generally, generally appreciate Section 5's preclearance process as Council, well as covered jurisdictions. I thought our opinion in City of Bernie said that the problem that Section uh, uh, 5 legislation addresses has to be widespread and persisting. Do you think the record that is before us today shows widespread and persisting discrimination in voting? Uh, I do. I think that Congress, uh, Congress's reports, it's a 16,000-page track record. In covered states as opposed to non-covered states, if I can add that to the Chief Justice's uh, question. I, I do agree that they went state by state and showed, uh, showed tremendous amounts of discrimination in those places. Of course, I disagree with the notion that this utility district can point to any one place in the country, be it Massachusetts or some corner in Georgia, and say, well, the evidence wasn't there. I think Congress has far more latitude under its 15th Amendment and 14th Amendment powers. Well, just one more thing on, on bailout. Uh, it's, it's like uh, King Eurythius keeps telling Hercules, oh, you did a good job, but now you've got another, you've got another thing to do. Uh, that's the bailout provision. Oh, I, uh, uh, anybody who's tried to fill out a government form realizes that they make a mistake so that the DOJ rejects it. That counts as a rejection. Maybe. You have to have a, a what a clean record for how many how many years, but before you can preclear. I mean, I mean, this is simply impracticable. Uh, and it seems to me a cornerstone of the act and of your argument for upholding the act. And if we find that it doesn't work, that it's just uh, that it's, it's just an illusion, uh, that gives me serious pause. Justice Kennedy, the only evidence in the record is that the bailout provision works nothing like the way that it might be hypothesized. That is, every single county, every single political subdivision that has asked for a bailout has received one. And in 2006, there was an even amendment offered to liberalize the bailout provision. That amendment was rejected overwhelmingly. And the reason it was rejected was that jurisdictions that are covered have now come to appreciate the power of Section 5 to deter voting discrimination, and that's why for, Congress made the judgment it did. Is incorrect? As I understand it, for Travis County to get a bailout, it, would, it, it has, uh, within Travis County, uh, something like 106 political subdivisions that are covered. And Travis County would have to go to all of those 106 and demonstrate that there's been no violation by any of those 106 for the preceding, whatever it is, five years, whatever the bailout uh, provision is. 
you think that's that you think that's feasible for the way the statute works they have to go to the 107 subunits which is absolutely feasible because they're under contract with all 107 subunits to administer their elections they have all of the voting data to, to put together that bailout and in Travis the- County is not the superior of many of those subunits as, as it is not of this district here this district is a subdivision of the state but not of Travis County again I think that's a distinction without a difference they have all of the registration data and everything else necessary to make the bailout provision. And the only record Congress had, and the only record before this Court, is that every single entity that has sought a bailout has received one. And the number is 18 now? The number is 18. Thank you, Counsel. Mr. Agdegbule. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, our long experience demonstrates that racial discrimination in voting has been persistent and adaptive. Only after careful assessment of the record did Congress find that the case-by-case method was inadequate and that Section 5 continued to do important work within the covered jurisdictions. There are a couple of things that I want to call the Court's attention to in light of the discussion that we've been having. First. The pernicious pernicious nature of voting discrimination is such that small changes in the rules of the game can affect many people. In addition, the Court has observed, as Congress has on multiple occasions when reauthorizing the Act, that the case-by-case method is slow and inadequate to the task. Indeed, Justice Kennedy's opinion in Bernie spoke to this problem of the case-by-case method. I want, I want to drill I, I, down. I think that's absolutely right. Section 2 cases are very expensive. They're very long. They're very inefficient. I think this, uh, this Section 5 preclearance device uh, has, has, has shown, has been shown to be very, very successful. The question is uh, whether or not it can be justified when other states are not covered today. As, as the Court said in Katzenbach when it first pre- was presented with this question of the coverage formula, Congress is permitted to use so much of its power as is necessary to target the problem as it finds it. The discrimination that was manifest in the covered jurisdictions was different in character at that time. And, but Congress did not stop and get frozen in time in 1965. The periodic reauthorizations have given Congress an opportunity to revisit the process. So is it, your, is it your position that today Southerners are more likely to discriminate than Northerners? I wouldn't frame it in that way, Justice, Chief Justice Roberts. I think the record does reveal that discrimination in the covered jurisdictions has a repetitive form. There are very — there are brief talks about over six dozen examples. Those are illustrative and not exhaustive, but repetitious violations. That is, violations in covered jurisdictions after a Section 2 — So your answer is Yes. I think that it's fair to say that the pattern has been more repetitious violations in the covered jurisdictions and and more one-off discrimination in other places. That is not to say that there isn't voting discrimination in other states. The record shows that there is discrimination in other states. But but Congress found that the nature of the way that the discrimination is practiced, viewed through the lens of history, is that repetitive violations happen. For example, after this Court decided the LULAC case, a case that was litigated over a number of months and very expensive and complicated, the State then tried to shorten the uh, period for early voting. 
and the plaintiffs in that case needed to file a Section 5 enforcement action post-2000 reauthorization uh, post-2000 redistricting, to give effect to this Court's judgment. So, but I guess that point depends upon the assumption that shortening the time period for early voting is discriminatory, as opposed to good policy. I think in the context of of that circumstance, Chief Justice Roberts, the issue was that you had a longstanding incumbent and that the early voting, the timing of the early voting period was such that it was going to conflict with a a holiday um, of, of uh, a uh, so that was to largely to protect the incumbent, to, to to protect the incumbent, but to disadvantage the community that was prepared to exercise its voice, as this court found in the Lulac opinion. Well, that is to say, the incumbent, incumbent was not the candidate of choice. Incumbent protection takes place in the north as well as the south. By by all means, but the but the incumbent protection in this instance was designed to cut off the minority community, the Latino voters, who had been disadvantaged by virtue of that plan. But certainly that is not the only example. Mr. Andik Bailey, what was I, — I read it in the briefs, and I forget what it was. What was the vote on, on this 2006 extension? It was 98 to nothing in the Senate, and what was it in the House? Was It, it was uh, — it was uh, — 33 to uh, 390, I believe. 33 to 390. You know, the, the um, um, Israeli Supreme Court, uh, the Sanhedrin, used to have a rule that if the death penalty was pronounced unanimously, it was invalid because there must, must be something wrong there. Uh, do you ever expect, do you ever seriously expect Congress to vote against a re-extension of the Voting Rights Act. You really think that any incumbent would uh, would uh, would would vote to do that? Well, 25 years from now, 50 years from now, when? Justice Scalia, I think some members of Congress, of course, did vote against the act. 33 members of the House and nobody in the Senate. 33 members of the House, indeed. But I think the, re- the reason that they voted for it is what's more important. Congress did not assume that Section 5 was necessary. They took a very careful examination to see how it was operating. And the determination was that in the absence of Section 5, because of the repetitive violations, because of 620 objections, approxi- there was evidence that approximately 60 percent of those show some evidence of intentional discrimination. If you take away the prophylaxis, the discrimination will return in a way that we don't need to revisit. The history has been that voting discrimination manifests itself through repetitive efforts. And but the, the question the, is, do you agree that this is unlike uh, access to buildings by people who are in wheelchairs? There has to come a point where it will end. And perhaps Congress was just picking up on what this court said a few years before in the University of Michigan Law School case. This court came up with a 25-year figure. So maybe Congress thought this court thinks 25 years is about right. I, I think that's con- about right. Congress had a more specific reason, as I understand the record. There was a specific amendment proposed to shorten the time to 10 years. Uh, then-Chairman of the Judiciary Committee, James Sensenbrenner, rose to explain that part of the experience has been that most of the infractions, not all but most, happen after the decennial census, when many voting changes are necessitated by uh, — through reapportionment. Not all of them involve reapportionment, but many are necessitated. And the judgment was that it was going to capture two decennial censuses, and they also looked back to see how much discrimination they found from 1982 until the 2006 reauthorization. 
And indeed, I think Congress was a little bit surprised that they had not yet been able to dislodge more of the discrimination. They acknowledged the progress, but saw that Section 5 was part of the agent of change, that progress didn't happen by itself. And the experience had been that it was helping us to move forward. And that is reflected, I think, in the State's brief, to come to Justice Kennedy's point. I think there is an intrusion. This Court's decisions have recognized that Section 5 does intrude, but even in Bernie, as the Court distinguished Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act from the uh, many of the uh, statutes that were there at issue, in that case, RIFRA, um, certainly other cases followed, the Court kept returning to Section 5 because the problem had been demonstrated by Congress. The gravity of the harm was so severe that Congress needed a special mechanism to dislodge it. Because if we don't have the vote, as this Court's decisions have recognized, our whole system is undermined. Well, so what is the reason, uh, in your opinion, if you had to summarize it in a sentence or two, you would say that the reason that Congress didn't go into other states and decide which ones to add to this, or go into these states, district by district, and decide which ones to subtract from this, the reason that Congress didn't modify the voting rights statute but simply renewed it is? Is that it wanted to stay the course of ridding the covered jurisdictions from discrimination. Katzenbach spoke in terms of eradication. Subsequent decisions have spoke about ridding the country of this scourge as it manifested itself in the covered jurisdictions. And, and I think there was some state-by-state state analysis, and there are reports of the covered jurisdictions that, that do it. All the, and, and Would you say from your experience, and, and I'm sure you're very knowledgeable about this, that there is now greater discrimination in voting in Virginia than in North Carolina or in Tennessee or in Arkansas or in Ohio? I, I can't um, precisely quantify the, the quantum of discrimination in each of those states, but I think that Congress's judgment was there had been a, de- a, demonstra- a demonstrated pattern of discrimination in the covered jurisdictions, that the coverage formula had Wasn't done- Virginia the first state in the Union to elect a black governor? Ye- yes, in- indeed it was, and, and yet um, that certainly they did not — black chief justice of the Supreme Court currently? Yes, but I, I — Justice Scalia, I, I take the point, but I think it's, it's not quite fair to say, as, as my um, uh, predecessor at the podium made the point, uh, there have been African Americans to rise to high office um, throughout our history. But, the, but that occasion of a single person sitting in a seat doesn't change the experience on the ground for everyday citizens. It, it is a — it has an important salutary effect. And it tells us about the possibilities of our Constitution. But it doesn't mean that voters um, uh, that are trying to vote in a school board election in Louisiana are going to have an easy time of it where racially polarized voting is as is as extreme as it is. And when election officials manipulate the rules of the game to try and disadvantage the minority community. Well, the brief filed by the MWAC Legal Defense Fund, uh, the first 15 pages, I, I, I think makes a good demonstration of, of uh, discrete uh, discriminatory acts and the brief filed by Nathaniel uh, Persily, Professor Persily, um, makes uh, an, uh, an important point about um, uh, crossover, uh, crossovers in, in different uh, my, my concern is I, I, it's just not clear to me that Congress addressed this for the rest of the country. That's, that's my concern. I think the, the 
close the best evidence of the of the comparison question to which you're returning is the Section 2 cases that, that were examined in a report that was submitted to Congress. And as appellants recognize in their brief, 600, notwithstanding the, the powerful Section 5 remedy, there were 653 successful um, Section 2 cases in covered jurisdictions, and the success rate in covered jurisdictions was much higher than in non-covered jurisdictions. So when you put together the objections, the request for more information followed by withdrawals, the Section 5 enforcement actions, the Section 2 cases, it is a picture that far exceeds the record that was before this august body when considering enactments of Congress in other contexts, in Hibbs and in Lane. And the record was of intentional discrimination, not simply disparities, but purposeful efforts to disadvantage minority groups. And I think that's the fundamental difference between the covered jurisdictions and the non-covered. Well, the, the cases you're talking about include both intentional and impact uh, cases. And the Constitution that Section 5 is designed to implement covers only intentional discrimination. So even the examples you give, have given are sweep broadly as a prophylactic measure. And then the Section 5 preclearance, of course, sweeps even more broadly. So we do have a situation, despite the evidence that was uh, that you have cited, where less than one-twentieth of one percent of the submissions that the states make uh, are denied preclearance. That, again, it seems to me that that means that Section 5 sweeps very, very broadly. I, I think there are two responses. First, the relevant assessment is not simply the rate. As the lower court found, the rate of objections, even at the time of the 1975 reauthorization in Rome, was very small. Judge Tatel spoke to this point in his opinion and in the oral argument. The rate has always been small. But what Section 5 is designed to do is to vindicate the principles of our Constitution. And the gravity of the harm is such that if we have 620 examples of discrimination, and 60 percent of those are intentional discrimination, together with some of the other indicia, and under this Court's cases, Congress is entitled to look broadly, not simply at the decided case, but to look broadly and to be the fact-finder of this important information. This is a pattern. It's a widespread pattern of intentional intentional discrimination. And I think that that is something that this Court needs to focus on as it works through this important and serious issue. Thank you, Question. How long did it take Congress to compile this 13,000-page record? Approximately 10 months, Justice. And how long would it have taken Congress, in your opinion, to have compiled a record to figure out what's happening in this respect in every state or in these states, district by district? I think that it, I, I can't put a precise time on it, but it would have, it would have been certainly a, a couple of more years. The, uh, the um, time that is necessary to compile these investigations and the expertise that, that's necessary to um, assemble them and, and call the data takes, uh, takes some time in my personal experience. So your position is that it makes no difference. If discrimination in the non-covered jurisdiction is more widespread and more persistent, it doesn't matter because Congress can focus solely on the jurisdictions that have been covered since 1965. I, I make a slightly different point. I don't think that it doesn't matter at all. I think Congress has to act reasonably. 
but the in light of the record before it, its judgment to stay the course in the covered jurisdictions because of the way voting discrimination has manifested itself in those jurisdictions, that judgment was reasonable on the record it had before it. It, it made a judgment in effect that Section 2 has proven more adequate to the task in other jurisdictions that don't have the same history of repetitive violations. So I guess your, your answer is that they can address the covered jurisdictions that have been covered since 1965 without looking at all to the rest of the country. I think that if, if things were flipped and discrimination was um, much worse outside, that would reflect on the reasonableness of, of Congress's judgment. But that's a fact situation that, isn't, that was not present before Congress. Thank you, Counsel. Thank you. Mr. Coleman, you have five minutes. But as Justice Alito pointed out, Congress didn't know because it didn't ask whether discrimination is worse in Tennessee or Arkansas than in Virginia and other states. Nobody knows sitting here today. Um, I respectfully disagree that Congress couldn't have put together that effort. What we really do here is that this, this badge that is preclearance, this uh, congressional judgment that state and local officials in covered jurisdictions who, in my experience, are strongly acting. You should have a chance to answer the same question. Repeat, you heard my question, the time question. What's your estimate? Oh, I, I strongly disagree with that. A, AEI put in a number of reports that evaluated um, things on the ground in a variety of non-covered jurisdictions, such as Milwaukee. Uh, I certainly think within the time that Congress took to look at this, if they had been interested, they could have easily have evaluated this information. It would have been easily available to well, them. Well, they now have 25 years to look at, uh, or 24 <laughs> years to look at the rest of the country. Are they doing that? They hold well, hearings? Uh, no, nobody is doing that. Uh, in, in answer to Justice Ginsburg's question about the Graz and Grutter point, that's what Congress did in 1982. It said 25 years. Uh, that 25 years has gone by. Times have changed. Well, this Court said, in what was the year of Grutter? It was not 1982. It was 2000-something. That's correct. And this Court thought from 2000-something, 25 years was a reasonable period. Congress's justification simply does, I think, as we've heard from from counsel, in in light of our mobile society and the fact that that people don't live in the same place people lived 40 years ago. This is a badge that — Just sort of background. Does your case challenge at all the standards that Congress has used throughout the statute for causing states to become covered jurisdictions? Well, the only standards that exist are whether you use a test or device in the 1960s. Have you ever challenged those as a basis for making a state or a county or an election district covered? I don't think we've challenged the action that took place. We have a history of some states are covered and some are not because of certain requirements that the statute imposed. And I didn't understand the case to involve a challenge to the method by which states became become covered. No, no, Justice Stevens, we do challenge that. Then the why why that is it relevant that there are a lot of states out there that are not covered? Uh, because this Court's discussion of these issues in Morrison and in Garrett uh, and even in Hibbs indicate that it does matter what the evidence shows with respect to a coverage determination. And Congress's decision to not update it, which we believe was for political reasons, simply bears no resemblance to reality. Uh, And looking back to see 
who was registered and who was voting in the 60s are, are doesn't you arguing the statute is unconstitutional because Congress favor, failed to extend it to other, other, uh, other parts of the country? No, I don't think that's our argument. I think our argument is it's partially unconstitutional because it even failed to look at the coverage criteria uh, and that it used a criteria literally off the books from the 60s and 70s without even looking at the information. Um, again, if, if Congress had done that in 1965 and said we want to look at this Franklin uh, Hoover, excuse me, Franklin Roosevelt uh, Hoover election in 1932, I think the Court would have been pretty surprised that that was the best and most relevant information that Congress could come up with. This idea that, of, of a badge that really runs with the land is, is something that we, we think is inherently unjustifiable. I'd also like to address the point about uh, racial block voting. Racial block voting is not discrimination and it's not unconstitutional. And indeed, in the way the Court has interpreted Section 2, and I realize there are divisions the on the Court about will, The district will never be involved in racial block voting for districting purposes because it doesn't, its boundaries don't change. That's true, Justice Ginsburg, but in terms of this facial challenge, it is important for the Court to understand and to consider the fact that Congress really thumbed its nose at the Court in terms of rejecting the constitutional concerns that the Court raised in, in Miller and in Bossier Parish and in Georgia v. Ashcroft. The new enactment has been changed in a way that, that really requires uh, covered jurisdictions to engage more and more in race-based redistricting and race-based, and it's not only redistricting, Justice Ginsburg, in race-based decision-making. And, and so here well, we are, 40 years. Construing the act as it was passed in 2006, say, well, Congress obviously had in mind that this would be enforced consistent with this Court's decision in Shaw, this Court's decision in Miller. We believe that the interpretation of the Act, or excuse me, the passage of the amendments in 2006, go far beyond what preclearance was in 1965. We have a more restrictive form of preclearance that requires state and local governments to engage in more, not less, race-based decision-making with respect to elections. And that, as the Court has noted, creates additional constitutional issues with the Court, with the statute. Thank you, Counsel. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until Monday next at 10 o'clock.